and welcome to Higher Ed, KUT's podcast focusing on issues of higher education, lifelong learning, and exercising the brain. I'm Jennifer Staten with KUT 90.5, Austin's NPR station, talking as always with Dr. Ed Berger, president of Southwestern University in Georgetown, Texas. Hello, Ed. Hello, Jennifer. And how are you today? Well, I'm doing very well. How are you? I'm doing great. And it's always good to have you on my campus. Well, thank you so much. I was going to say, I know one reason why you're in a good mood today, because you heard from a podcast listener who had a fantastic idea for our discussion. Yeah. uh, A friend of mine whose name is Jay, last initial M. I don't know if we're allowed to say last names or not. So I'll just say Jay and then M. that's totally fine. That Uh, works. he, He sent me this article, which I sent to you. And I'll let you go from there. Yeah, and I'm so glad that, that Jay sent this to you. And there was an op-ed. This is from an op-ed that was in the New York Times over the summer. And the headline itself is pretty intriguing. Make your daughter practice math. She'll thank you later. And we're going to talk, talk about, we can talk about the headline alone. Exactly, the, sure. But the, the op-ed was written by an engineering professor, Barbara Oakley. She wrote the column, and I just want to read a little bit of it. And we'll also link to it. On the website. So people can go find the podcast online and they can link to it. But a large body of research has revealed that boys and girls have on average similar abilities in math, but girls have a consistent advantage in reading and writing and are often relatively better at these than they are at math, even though their math skills are as good as the boys. The consequence, a typical little boy can think he's better at math than language arts. But a typical little girl can think she's better at language arts than math. And as a result, when she sits down to do math, she might be more likely to say, I'm not that good at this. She actually is just as good on average as a boy at math. It's just that she's even better at language arts. So Oakley goes on to suggest, I'm quoting from her again now, all American students could benefit from more drilling. But girls especially could benefit from some extra required practice, which would not only break the cycle of dislike, avoidance, further dislike, but build confidence and that sense of, yes, I can do this. Practice with math can help close the gap between girls reading and math skills, making math seem like an equally good long-term study option. Well, <laughs> a lot there. there's a lot there. I'm curious your thoughts. I mean, pull pull any part out of was, that. Where do we start? Well, I was taking some notes uh, while you were reading it. And let me just begin with the traditional classic bias that, that we uh, had toward women engaged in math and STEM fields in general. So, you know, it, and it takes, it takes a while to, to clean that out. But what's interesting is that there are certain um, social scientific experiments that have taken place. And I just want to share one of them with you just to give you uh, a sense of how we have to be a little careful. Mm-hmm. So they, they took a bunch of young students, a bunch of girls, and they had three groups that, who were all equally talented within the context of math. So a mix of, you know, strong, medium, weak students. But they were all female. And they uh, put them into a room. So the first group went into a room and they were going to pass out an exam. And then to the first group, they said, uh, by the way, uh, this is math, but you are all so smart. You know, you're really, you're, you are girls and you can conquer the world. And so you're going to do great on this exam. So you, you can do it. You can do it. You can do it. Okay. The next group of girls, they give the same exam too. And they say, here's a math exam. Well, you know how girls do on math. Good luck. And then the third group, they gave out the exams to the, these uh, girls and said nothing, just took the exam. And the question is, uh, 
which population did the best. And they were all essentially an equal mix of Correct. ability, so that Correct. wouldn't play a factor. Right. So what do you think? Well, I mean, I guess, you know, if if you were following maybe some of the reasoning we've been hearing about, the group of girls that was told, you can do it, probably did the best. The group that wasn't told anything maybe did the middle, and the group that was told, well, math, you know how that is, probably did the worst. Yeah. So what happened, what the, what the scientists discovered was that the group that was reminded of the bias, whether it was in a positive spin, you can do it, or a negative spin, well, good luck, they did worse. And the group that was not biased at all by the fact that they happened to all be women sitting, in the, girls sitting in that room taking the exam, uh, they did the best. So the reason why I mention that is because one needs to be careful that if we're doing something to amplify the kind of preconceived notion and bias and prejudice that's out there, we want to make sure that we don't amplify it, that we do whatever we want to do. And at the end of the article, I remember that the, the, the author said, you know, in fact, do this for your sons too. And, and that's, I think, an important point, which is that we shouldn't be kind of treating one gender or one population differently because it will then exacerbate the, the stereotype that's out there. So that was my first reaction. So that recommendation of, it goes back to the headline, make your daughter practice math, she'll thank you later. You would, you would disagree with that unless it said, Make your children practice math. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I, it doesn't preclude the, the headline doesn't preclude the fact that you shouldn't be doing this with your son as well. Uh, the other thing that that I liked about the the narrative is that it, it illustrates, I think, an important lesson for life for all of us, which is that we need to shore up our weaknesses. It's so easy to say, "Well, I'm I'm really weak at that, so I'm just going to avoid that." And you know, so I talk to math students. You know, what, what's what's your weakness? I don't like you know writing. So what's the therefore? You know, my therefore is take more writing classes to become better at it. Their therefore is I'm going to avoid all the, you know, English and, and history and, and political science classes. And so, you know, her comment about, you know, take a weakness and, and, and practice and make it a strength uh, to me is something that's valuable across the, the gender lines and the subject lines, that we should be looking for opportunities to strengthen our weaknesses. So again, you're not disputing the fact that the extra practice is good, but perhaps the fact that it doesn't need to be only <laughs> offered for girls and not boys. Well, I mean, and the boys should be, quite frankly, if, I mean, I don't, I, I'm not someone who, you know, can speak to the, to the data that she was uh, referring to. But if what she says is correct, then the idea that the, the boys are doing worse in the language arts, they should be drilling in that, you know, of course, and so that they shore up their, their, their abilities in that field while the girls are working and drilling. The word drilling, by the way, was maybe the only part of the article that I just am not, you know, drilling sounds, sounds like a fun. dentist, sounds like a dentist <laughs> going in and drilling without Novocaine sounds painful. Uh, but I, I like the idea of practice. And if it's just mindless mimicking, if that's the drilling, then I don't see anything particularly helpful coming out of it. But if it is drilling in terms of the practice of ideas and making greater meaning and having deeper understanding and all of a sudden intuiting uh, an abstract field, that is very exciting. And, and so I just will take it to mean that that's what she meant. But, but just the drilling and, and the kind of uh, rote practice um, mindlessly mimicking uh, is, is not great. Uh, I don't care what the field is or what the gender is. Well, it, it seems to me also that, I mean, sort of unpacking kind of the premise or unpacking that idea that's out there that young men are going to be better at math than young women and young women are better at language arts, verbal skills than young men. It seems to me that 
by the time you get to any point where that can be assessed, students have been through so much already. Right. They've, they're growing up in yes. a particular home. They've right. had a particular educational setting. Right. You know, the, to be able to control for every single factor seems almost impossible. And what if we just assume that every student comes to the table doing the best they can and kind of go from there? Right. So I agree. But I do find it very thought-provoking that if you're looking at one discipline and another and relative to another, you're not as good in the one, then that creates that bias. And I find that very interesting and quite thought-provoking, quite frankly, independent, again, whether we're talking about boys and girls in math, but just in language arts. But that's the idea that if I compare two fields and it turns out that I, I, I thrive in one and not so much in the other, that that one becomes a weaker and weaker one, that's interesting and we should do something about that. Well, and what's interesting to me also is you think back to how many decades has this been a prevailing thought that I'm using quotes, girls are bad at math and yeah, boys for a long time. I mean, how how much unpacking would we have to do culturally and in society a lot. so that teachers don't even unconsciously bring to the table right. that treatment of students? Because it's just been embedded and embedded over time to the point where, you know, you would have to consciously stop yourself. If you're in that classroom setting, I'm imagining just because, you know, it's kind of seeped in there. And even at, by the way, you don't have to go down to boys and girls. You can talk about men and women uh, at, you know, an undergraduate level. I was uh, recently out in Boston at a meeting and I was talking to uh, a faculty member from a, a different institution and she is in the psychology department there at, at her institution. And she was saying that, in fact, she sometimes realizes that unintentionally there's a bias between how she treats the male students and the female students in the class. And that's in psychology. In math, I try to be very sensitive to that. But you can argue that by being sensitive, then maybe actually I'm doing some of that as well. For example, uh, early on in my career, when I would cold call students, imagine a class where you had predominantly uh, the class was made up predominantly of male students, and there was a you know, few female students. They were the minority in the class. Well, then to, as I cold called early on in my career, I would try to make it balanced. But really, that's then a bias because it means that those handful of women were being asked to speak more in class than the, the larger quantity of men that was, it was more diluted with them. And, and when I realized, and I was trying to make it fair, right? But the truth was, it wasn't really fair. It was almost like I was picking on this smaller population. And so now I try to, you know, choreograph it so it's much more proportioned. So for example, if there's one third boys and two thirds girls, I'll try to randomly pick, you know, women two thirds of the time and men uh, a third, you know, a third of the time. But it's very hard to do. And, th- and every time you try to do that, you are automatically introducing bias. And that was what the psychology professor was sharing with me. And that's her field. And yet still we do it. And so it's hard to avoid it. But I think as long as we're trying to fight it and encourage everyone to do better than, than they have been and to encourage them to have uh, a drive to the subject, and if it appeals to them to, to have them go on to the subject, that's what's the most important thing. So, Ed, I have to say our new yeah. puzzler from last week very much appealed to me. And ah. I want to I get to so your response. You're I'm putting curious. Your, you're putting your stamp of approval on this puzzler. Because <laughs> it am, was about stamps. I'm putting my stamp of approval. Let me remind our listeners what we were talking about. On May 1st, 1840, the very first postage stamp was introduced uh, in England. It was called uh, Penny Black. It, it uh, showed, it depicted the image of Queen Victoria. And uh, it was a great success, and stamps, of course, became worldwide. 
Uh, but the penny black was only used for a year, and then it was actually replaced by a stamp called penny red. And the question for our listeners and for you, our Jennifer Staten, yes. is uh, twofold. First of all, uh, why did this change after the year? And secondly, uh, why do I personally like Penny Black? Okay, so we're going to do the second one first because right. I had the bonus two, one. We'll do the bonus one first. I had two theories. I had two answers to the second question. Yeah. It turned out neither one of them was the one you were thinking of. Right. I My two suggested answers were, one, because Southwestern University's colors are black and gold, so and you are being true to your school. I love it. The other one was because as the president of an institution <laughs> of higher education, you would much prefer to operate in the black than in the red. Now, it turns out neither one of those was what you but were But I love that second one so much that I'm, I'm going to give you full credit plus. I want to hear what you were thinking. Well, uh, what I was thinking was uh, the timeliness of this. The first stamp was in 1840, which is the same year as our very first original charter at Southwestern. Oh, wow. Okay. So it's interesting, actually. Our original charter goes back to to February of 1840. This was done in May of 1840. So Southwestern University is actually older than every single stamp that's ever existed in humankind. How cool is that? That's pretty cool. All right. That... That's a good one. I, uh, I, I thought you'd say, like that. I'm not sure I could have thought of it, but that I is, thought you would have when you, you wrote down 1840. I, I did, but I, I you I, need to know your history I, about Southwestern. I did not know my history, and we've even done that as an episode before. I know I'm we embarrassed have. that I did not know. All right, so that was my favorite part. <laughs> so <laughs> to get to the first part of the puzzler, kind of mm-hmm. the meat of the puzzler, why did it change? Black, black to red. So I had two, I had two ideas. All right, go ahead. And they're both sort of, I would say, technology of the times related. One is some change in ability to print mm-hmm. that may have made it easier to produce a stamp that was red and not black. And uh-huh. the second one is kind of related, which yep. would have been some advancement in ink or, you know, again, printing technology that would have made what was not possible in 1840 possible in 1841 just because right. of an advancement. I want to pick up a word that you said in the second guess, which I really like, and I want to pull that thread a little bit. Okay. The word you said was ink. Ink. Uh So let's think about that. So tell me about the life of a stamp. Can you talk talk our listeners through the life of a stamp? How does that work? So I guess the life of a stamp in 1840. Or today, whatever you want. Well, first you have to purchase a stamp somewhere. So So you have to go to a post office. There are lots of ways to do that now. But in 1840, you probably just had to go to the post office, purchase a stamp. We have it now. Take the stamp from the vendor. Probably take it home. Okay. Affix it to the top right-hand corner. I guess that's how they did it in England yeah. in 1840. I was say, maybe it's like driving where they put it on the left-hand side. I don't maybe know. Maybe they no, do. I don't think so. I think it's always the top right corner. That's right. Affix it to the front right. corner somewhere of the Very letter. Very good. Keep going. Then the letter gets put into some kind of mailbox. Yes. Keep going. Is delivered to the recipient. No, 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 no. Okay. Now let's do that. What happens? Dropped in the mailbox. Keep going. And then somebody with a post office has to take it out of the mailbox. Keep going. It gets sorted. Keep going. It gets bagged up again. It then gets distributed. No, 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 no. Before it's distributed. What happens? The life of the stamp itself. Focus on the stamp. What happens to that stamp? It gets canceled. It gets canceled. And what is used to cancel the stamp? What, well, more ink is used to cancel exactly. the stamp. Like a, sort of almost a stamp on top of the stamp. And and what color is traditionally that ink? Well, now it's red. But what was it a long time ago? I guess it was black. Correct. So they had to need, they needed contrast. And what happened was when they first started doing this... Mm-hmm. The, the the stamp, the when it was canceled, you couldn't see it. 
And so people could just recycle and pull off the stamp and reuse it again and uh-huh. again and again. And they said, wait a minute, this doesn't work. So they made their stamp red. And that way, when they stamped it with the black ink, it, it was showed. very, it showed, it showed, it showed. I, people are always figuring out ways to kind of beat the system, beat the right? System. We had a question, I think, a year ago about why do prices end in 99 yes. cents? And it was the same kind of thing. That was fun. Yeah. That was very fun. Anyway, 1840, <laughs> that is the year of the first uh, the first charter of Southwestern University. Southwestern University, older than stamps themselves. Wow. Thank you. Wow. Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you. I'm here all week. <laughs> well, Ed, just as we wrap up our discussion, sort of based on this very thought-provoking op-ed in the New York Times, I want to ask you, you know, if the New York Times called and said, hey, Dr. Berger, we'd like you to write an op-ed about boys and girls and math and language arts and learning. We don't have time for you to expound what your entire op-ed would be, but at least tell us what would be the seeds of of your op-ed on this topic, what would be the main points that you would want people to know about what kind of a, can be a challenging and confusing concept here? Well, I mean, I just would, I just would pull on what we, what we said earlier, which is that independent of whether we're talking about a different sexes and science or whatever, that we should, as lifelong learners at any stage in our life, acknowledge where our weak points are and then commit ourselves, it was in, in this op-ed piece, it was called drilling, but, but commit ourselves to focusing more of our intellectual effort on making greater meaning of those weaknesses. If we take the floor intellectually, you know, the kind of the points that are the lowest for us, and we raise the floor, that only pushes everything else up, including the ceiling. And so that's what I talk about. Dr. Ed Berger, thank you for helping us always raise the ceiling and try to learn more and do better. (laughs) Dr. Ed Berger is president of Southwestern University in Georgetown, Texas. You can find out more at southwestern.edu. And you can keep your brain busy by keeping up with the news and other episodes of Higher Ed at KUT.org. I'm Jennifer Staten, KUT News.